Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this weekend, we're talking about life in the woods. So I know, Rob, you have eschewed city life this week. You have gone to greener pastures, not exactly literally, but like, let's go with it. We're, we're stretching the metaphor, but it's fine. You've gone to a beautiful place to spend your week, and I want to hear about it. Yeah, uh, so this is like basically my first day uh, back in Boston. Uh-oh, giving people a glimpse behind the curtain is not actually the weekend when we record this. Oh, no. We are, but we are mentally projecting forward into the weekend. The, yes. It's the weekend in our hearts when we record this uh, podcast. We're, we're kind of like uh, the corona marketing line of finding <laughs> your beach. Uh, our weekend is whenever we do this podcast. Yes, that's correct. Uh, and sometimes that means our weekend is uh, approximately an hour and 45 minutes long, uh, which <laughs> is, is how things sometimes feel. But anyway, uh, yeah, I went to uh, a place you may or may not have heard of. You may have heard legends of it uh, when, when you lived here in Boston, uh, a place beyond the Charles River oh. known as Western Massachusetts. Oh, I went to college in Western Massachusetts. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I, uh, I so, know all about it. I, I used to run. I, I ran cross country in college, and I used to run in the beautiful woods. Almost all of our courses were in beautiful woods in Western Mass. Or New Hampshire, but yeah, Western Mass. Well, that is, uh, yeah, that's that's basically what I went, went out there for. Uh, I was house-sitting for a friend. And not to run in the woods, good, goodness, no. Uh, but to walk <laughs> in the woods, uh, certainly, and to break in new hiking boots. Um, and... It was just one of those really perfect weeks where, um, so it was great because I was like out of my normal environment. I was out there alone uh, as well because my partner still had to work in the city. Uh. So I was just like completely isolated and had no obligations beyond, uh, you know, working at Waypoint and uh, not burning down the house and taking care of my uh, friend's fish. Oh, nice. I handled about two of those things well. Oh. Uh, listeners oh, of Waypoint no. Radio uh, may have heard what happened to the betta, uh, the betta fish. Um, yeah, it's it, it kind of reached its omega fish uh, oh. status. I guess oh. what I'd what what I'd say. Um, so anyway, I was yeah. So I was just out there in the woods, and I lived like this really sort of simple, uh, idyllic life of. Waking up early, throwing on my boots, and uh, like going out and walking trails in the nearby forests, and it was utterly restorative. Um, and I get, you know, you, you just sometimes get that weird—you aren't fully aware of how bad your habits have become, or how much stress you're just sort of carrying with you as a baseline <laughs> until you like step out of your environment and go to your happy place. Uh, as it were. And by the middle of the week, I was having this weird feeling of, um, I don't know, I guess it was almost like, um, oh, what's, what would be the right word for it? Uh, not, it's like buoyancy, but it's not quite the word I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking for, but like just this incredible, like light, joyous feeling, uh, that yes. was, that was really unfamiliar. And it would almost like would give me the giggles, uh, at times during the day. Cause it was like, you're so used to just carrying like a degree of stress and annoyance with you yes. that on the days when that is completely gone, you just feel like uh, euphoria. That's the word I'm looking yes. for. Uh, you just feel like this vague euphoria. And, uh, so I had a full week of that just, uh, you know, early to bed, uh, early to rise, 
saw the sunrise a bunch uh, over the over the hills of Western Massachusetts, and I was like, this is this is heaven. Um, and I highly, highly recommend, like you know, finding that happy place uh, and spending some time there because it is a it was one of the most like effective mental resets uh, you know I, I've had in, I've had in ages. Do, do you have like a you know, a metaphorical or literal woods, uh, a, a, a reliable mental reset. I do, I do. I, I kind of have two primary happy places, and they are general sort of foresty, especially like mountains. But any any kind of forest will do. Hills are fine, you know. Those those are fine. And beaches. I'm also very, very, very happy when I'm on a beach. And uh, running in both of those places is especially meditative for me. Uh, it makes me incredibly happy to go for like a nice run on a beach or near a beach where I can sort of see the water and just kind of, you know, go along my way or in the woods in just a very pretty wooded place. There's something about the light in the woods that makes me incredibly happy. The way light filters through the trees uh, just creates a really nice and peaceful and uh, just really nice effect that makes me euphoric for sure. Um, so yeah, those are, those are mine. And I actually did, uh, for once, I mean, living in New York, you don't get many opportunities to go to the woods. It takes hours to escape New York as we, uh, had, uh, established also on Waypoint Radio. <laughs> many hours. Sometimes you go to New Jersey to go back to Rhode Island. I don't know why. Um, but I actually, uh, went for a really nice walk with my dad in a park in Rhode Island called Lincoln Woods, which is a really just, it's not huge. Nothing is huge in Rhode Island, obviously, but... It's just really pretty. There's like a really pretty. The pond. corruption is huge, Danielle. You know, their corruption. You know, Mayor Mayor Buddy. <laughs> uh, Buddy live large. Buddy was larger than life. That is absolutely true. Buddy, R.I.P. Buddy Cianci, the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, if you listen to with Crime Town podcast, that's what it's called. You'll hear all about Buddy. But also, if you talk to any Rhode Islander who has lived there uh, at any point, really in uh, sort of before the late the later 2000s before this decade really you you will know all all about buddy but yeah Lincoln Woods is a really pretty place it's a place I used to go to when I was a kid and I hadn't been there in many 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 years and I was I was in Rhode Island for a funeral it was really sad I had a cousin who died super young it was depressing and sad and after the funeral I was kind of like who wants to go for a walk with me uh, basically I was like I'm gonna go to Lincoln Woods I'm gonna go for a walk and so my dad came with me uh, we had a really nice walk uh, in Lincoln Woods. Fun fact: Les Paulson, who is a, a marathon runner in the in like the '40s, he won the Boston Marathon a bunch of times. He was a dude from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, which is my hometown, uh, who just ran a lot in Lincoln Woods, and so they they named like the loop for him. So you know that was that was fun and exciting. All kinds of fun facts. We got all kinds of fun facts here, but it was very restorative. It. Uh, it was also very helpful after a very sad and, you know, uh, not happy <laughs> funeral, basically. It was really nice to be like, and now I'm going to go to the beautiful woods and see some foliage and hang out with my dad and talk about old runners. So <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> uh, do you find that one of the weird things that I sort of noticed while I was out in the woods as well. Uh, there's two things. One is that it just felt like I was in better shape or had greater endurance in the woods. And I really just think it might've just been because like it tends to be slightly cooler in the woods and the ground is softer, yeah. uh, except yes. for, you know, obviously all the rocks and, and tree roots, but like it's easier to go like hiking in the woods. If like there's a little wear and tear in your ankles and knees, uh, than it is to like, I can climb a hill in the woods 
uh, that can be like pretty daunting, but like ask me to walk up like Russian hell in San Francisco and I'm like, I would sooner die. <laughs> That's one of my favorite hills to run up. In, in oh San my God, Francisco, you sicko. I'm, I'm a hill runner. You know, I, I just like hills. Uh, no, but I completely agree with you. It is, it's so much better on your legs. Like I really wish I had a, a dirt loop or something uh, to run on here in New York. And, and I'm sure they, they exist in like Prospect Park or something, but that's not near where I live. So it's not all that useful to me. Uh, but it, it really is. I mean, when I was in cross country uh, in, in college, high school and college, uh, my coaches would always be like, no, you're running, a, you're running on the the roads today or you're running on the, the dirt today. And it was always, always, always uh, dirt whenever we could. And of course, being in Western Mass, there were usually a lot of dirt loops. There were a lot of trails that we could use. Uh, you just really are a little bit better cushioned. Uh, obviously, if you're in the woods, you have to watch out for things like rocks and, and stumps and things like that, that you could trip on and fall and break your face. That's that's the only problem with it. But it is so much better for your body, actually, to, to work out on uh, dirt. Uh, in pretty much every circumstance. Now, I'm sure there's like some really great track material that's also good, but tracks are on a loop and that's not great for your body. So yeah, the ultimate surface to be moving on, to be traversing, to be on your feet on is is dirt. And so that yeah. makes a lot of sense. I think the coolness helps a little bit as well. Like, so it's shady, you're not dying in the, you know, in the sun or anything like that. Uh, there's always like a nice breeze in the woods typically. So yeah, all those things help, but it is very, very... That is a real ass thing that dirt is way better to be walking on or running on. The other thing I was sort of thinking about while I, while I was out there um, is that. So basically, I realized that, like, I have some really bad habits and, and one of them is for sure uh, being online, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like literally uh, reflexively opening and checking Twitter uh, is legitimately terrible for me uh my concentration my mood like i sort of knocked it off a little bit while i was out there and like the difference between a day where i successfully like basically log out for most of the afternoon and evening uh versus a day where i sort of stay online and get extremely online yeah. uh is is pretty much night and day and it really like the frustrating thing about coming back from something like this is it feels like you're just on this timer before your bad habits that you know you have start to reassert themselves. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that, like, I'm trying to be better about and trying to sort of change up uh, how I handle that stuff. But I'm curious, like, when you when you sort of manage to break outside your, your day-to-day, like, what is, like what, is, what is your secret? Uh, what is the thing you do that, like... Uh, is like your worst case of like subtle self-sabotage. Oh God. I mean, it's, it's very similar. It's just spending too much time online and also just getting so angry online. Yeah. It's yeah. just being so angry. I mean, I think it's for usually legitimate reasons. I'll, I'll see things that alt-right people are doing and, you know, I'll see things like, Obviously, it's not always as extreme, but but something like the massacre that occurred a couple of weeks ago in Las Vegas, or you'll see hate speech, or you'll see, you know, really awful, atrocious things. And I don't know, I don't know how it's possible not to be angry about that stuff. Like, I know a lot of people seem to go through life with a, some some kind of detachment, but I'm I'm incapable of that. I I am never not angry about things like this happening in the world like how can you not be so 
some of it is, it feels like, oh, I have a, a duty as an informed citizen to know what's going on and to occasionally attempt to help with these things or, or signal boost things or, you know, in an ideal world, actually go down to protest and, you know, lend my hand as like a medic or, or something. Uh, it obviously doesn't happen every day, but that's part of it. And part of it is also like, yeah, I also need to learn that like it, just being miserable and angry isn't isn't going to help anything uh if i do it all the time all it's going to do is shorten well, my lifespan <laughs> yeah i think there's a weird uh so for me like a, an example was and we talked about it on on waypoint radio last week and a little bit during uh waypoint 101 or on wolfenstein uh when that buzzfeed article came out yes not only did i read it but like i had to just soak in like i i read it and then i read people's excerpts they were sharing online and i was reading like the tweet threads about it and all this and like there was this element of like it was an important thing worth reading and brought valuable information and insight into uh, both our past and our present and our future. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, there is this aspect of like, you can just get lost in this stuff. And after a certain point, you're not becoming better informed or more... Um, or, or like, in some way, yeah. Yeah, you're just you're just ingesting, uh, you know, poison and negativity to a point where it's starting to, you know, just uh, just you know, take uh, you know, take health and and well being like out of the equation, right? It's no longer additive. the 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 outrage you're getting is no longer fuel for anything. It is now just like now you are the fuel uh, for for the outrage. And that is a that is a tough thing too. It's like you do want to be you do want to be informed. You do want to be like you do want to hold on to a sense of like moral uh, urgency. Yeah. But then after a certain point, you just start steeping in this, and at best you'll just get like exhausted and depressed and like furious. But you just won't be like you'll you'll sort of be spinning your wheels. And at worst, sometimes I think hopelessness overtakes you and yeah. then your moral urgency gives way to like just kind of a despairing uh inactivity uh that yeah. i think think is also uh really dangerous to to entertain so i think being mad online is <laughs> definitely a uh a, a bad habit uh more more innocuously um I did find that the other thing that's really good uh, about being out there, the, the the habit I broke, was eating proper meals. <laughs> that helps. Yeah. I just stopped eating proper meals and I just started like, eh, I'll just have some carrots when I'm hungry. Like just, you know, grazing on like that sort of stuff or have like having lots of oatmeal instead of proper meals because it's easy. I could just make a bunch of it and just forget about food. Um, and I was like, man, I like when I'm at home, I spend way too much time thinking about like, what am I supposed to eat right now? Like what, what should my, what should a healthy diet look like? And just sort of living off by myself. Suddenly it just became this really simple, like, look, man, if you get hungry, you just eat something and then you stop being hungry and then you go do whatever you need to do. Uh, and that was a really nice thing too. Uh, it was, it was the realization that like, eh, I can live pretty comfortably on like, bread oatmeal and uh, you know the occasional apple yeah i it, it like never fails to shock me how much better i feel when i'm really really taking it seriously like i i 
I would like to call myself like an 85% health nut. Like, and I am. And the area where I'm not is, is always diet. It's my sweet tooth that gets me every time. Like, otherwise, like my exercise schedule is uh, insane uh, and uh, <laughs> abundant, I guess. <laughs> I work out every day. It's really important to my mental health and just not feeling like wanting to, you know, I, I don't yeah. know, just feeling crazy, I guess. Um, and I get a decent amount of sleep, I think, for a, a busy person. Like, I really, really go for eight hours a night. It does not always happen, but I really try for it. Um, and I eat mostly healthfully. Mostly. Like, that is, there, there's that little asterisk that's like, ice cream is real good. <laughs> yeah, ice cream is so good. Oh, my God. Ben and, like, and Jerry, you are, oh. you are a, a siren. Yes. Yes. Ben and Jerry is really is my downfall. Um, and, like... I've also had to had to do the step back thing where it's like, all right, I need to not get mad at myself. If if that if like mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. is contributing as well to the negativity, that's a problem. So it's like, all right, I I need to allow myself to have it at least a couple of days a week. You know, not overindulge, but like, all right, make sure you get some treats in there. And that's why I call myself an eighty five percent health nut. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. the more seriously I'm taking it, the more you, you know. But if you're taking it so seriously when that you're immediately like that, like multiple times a week, you are rating yourself a failure. Right. uh, Then it's bad. Yeah. That entire that entire aspect of like, um, you know, any time you're just trying to take care of yourself or like create new good habits and your crappy brain is instead (laughs) like, okay, but if you don't live up to these goals, then that means you've let yourself down and you're a failure. And that's probably a moral stain on you. Uh, <laughs> and that's, and that's yep. something definitely to, uh, to avoid as well. Um, one last thing just about happy places. Yeah. Um, I've been in my happy place as far as games go of late. Ooh. Uh, so I've been playing F1 2017. Oh, yes. And here is the weird thing. They have successfully made a pretty good feeling sports game about Formula One. Uh, it does not feel like a typical racing game. It definitely feels like if you were playing the franchise mode, uh, the career mode in F1 2017, it feels like a sports game franchise mode. Uh, and it is really cool because it has all the stuff of an F1 weekend, the, the practice sessions. Uh, there's, there's three of them each weekend. Uh, there's a three-stage qualifying. There's uh, the race itself. And a lot of racing games in the past have basically cut a lot of this stuff out because if you're not racing, what really is the point, right? Like, who needs a practice session? F1 2017, like, sort of, you know, puts its hand up and is like, well, actually, part of this sport is testing car setups and doing research on the track uh, with, uh, you know, by, by sort of trying to test different components of the car and so a good example is for instance um to unlock research points data because there is kind of an rpg skill tree where you can like you basically tell the factory and the the r&d department to start working on this new component or improving this this other component and you spend uh, research points to do that but the way you generate those is you'll have like for instance a test of like we are testing tire wear uh, and so can you get around the track and set these times, uh, they aren't fast times, but like they're good, steady racing, racing pace, uh, without making your tires too hot, keeping them in the optimal, uh, temperature band. 
And that requires changing how you drive. Like if you are racing up to the corners and then slamming on the brakes and then entering the corner, you can set really fast times doing that, but you're like shredding your tires as you do that. So how can you set the same time, but be way more like graceful, right? Like less um, full on the gas, full on the brake and more like, uh, you know, to, to uh, paraphrase Bruce Lee, as it were, uh, you know, how do you, how do you flow like water uh, around the track? And you do that and it's incredibly demanding but also, as we've talked about before, it's super meditative, Danielle. Oh, it's it super is. like just it's this weird satisfaction of like, yeah, I just took I just turned a perfectly respectable lap and I did it without stressing the car. I did it. I took care of the car and the car's gonna take care of me and we're all gonna get better together. It's this weird, it's it's yes. so good. Uh, it makes for a great career mode, uh, but also does a great job of like giving you a reason to take part in all the stuff that makes up Formula One. Uh, and so I've been, with the exception of the fact that I'm really bad at this game uh, with a controller, <laughs> um, with I haven't tested it with the uh, steering wheel, but with a controller I'm pretty terrible. Uh, with the exception of the, that frustration, um, I've also been spending a lot of time in that, uh, in that happy place known as uh, the cockpit of a car. Oh, God, that's beautiful. It's always it's always so funny to me because I, I'm not like a big fan of racing in real life or anything, but or of car racing in real life. But man, a good oh, a good time in Forza or dirt or you know just just makes me happy, man. It's just I think it's like a good running substitute in my head. I think that's what mm-hmm. it is. It's like a, it's like. If I if I'm not physically out there, this feels a little bit like running, and that's a really nice feeling. That's a feeling I enjoy. It's just very meditative and nice. I agree. Have you been in any other happy places with gaming, or or should we move on to our weekend correspondence? Uh, I think we're ready to move on, unless you've been in a happy place. Ah, oh, well, just you know, just the usual happy place of playing rabbits. But I'm you know, in, in ten years when I beat that game, we'll we'll talk more. <laughs> Yeah, well, like I'm uh, probably gonna order a switch uh, next uh, ne- next weekend. Oh, okay. so uh, yeah, that's that's like top of my list. Uh, it's, it's, I, it's pretty a good tactics it's game is gonna game. get me to buy a switch. Yeah, we're gonna have to talk about what my first like lineup of switch games is gonna be. Uh, that's another conversation. Oh yeah, yeah, we're gonna have that one. That one's yeah, that's upcoming. Take it off a little box there. All, All right. right. Well, we've got an email. From John Rennish, uh, friend, friend, uh, friendly correspondent. Let's just call him friendly correspondent. Yeah. I like that. Uh, John Rennish, who says, Hello, Danielle Riendo and Rob Zachney. I'll be staffing the open play area at a local expo this weekend, teaching guests how to play new games. Many board games, especially the really chitty ones. I know what that means. Lots of chits, okay. yeah. Yes, okay. gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Are woefully ineffective at onboarding new players. Video games often fail in the very same ways when attempting to teach players how to play and enjoy their new game. What have been some of the best slash worst experiences learning a new game? Oh, man. Okay, so. Yeah. Uh, there is a rule one, like that every board gaming group will eventually hit on, which is... Do not try to start a new game or teach a new game after 
blanket clock. Now that depends on the group of people you're with. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, like literally, like at 4 p.m., that's the end of the window for trying a new game. Uh, other people, you know, you they can you know they can start a session at nine, uh, but never at, like just know your group's limits and never. No matter how good you, how much you like a game, no matter how easy you think it'll be for people to grok, uh, if you just explain it, uh, never try to start a new game uh, when you're already pretty deep into uh, into the day or the evening. Um, I have a friend, uh, so Rob Davio, uh, you know, basically to this day refuses to play uh, a really good board game called Agricola because. Many, many years ago, uh, somebody attempted to teach it at like 11 p.m. at a, a gaming convention. And apparently we're also kind of a prick about the entire thing. Oh, no. And so he's never like forgiven the game for this experience where like people are being both really fussy about the rules and really bad at explaining them because everyone's tired. Uh, and so that game went until like three in the morning, four in the morning, uh, and it was miserable the entire time. And that's never, like, he's never going to play that again. Uh, so, yeah, that is a, uh, so I, I, there is a deck building game. I can never remember if it's Dominion or Dominions. There's two, there, okay, it's Dominion. Okay, singular uh, Dominion. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, it's a card uh, deck building game. And uh, my first uh, Ravicon with, with Julian Murdoch, um, I, Somebody tried to teach it to me at like eleven thirty at night, and oh. everyone was drunk. Oh. And it was a, and the person trying to teach it was sober, uh, and so it was just an enormously frustrating thing because everyone uh, is trying to look attentive, but nobody is capable of doing it. Um, I didn't understand anything. I was getting distracted, um, and yeah, I basically like I was taught Dominion. Didn't retain anything. I think I played half of a game, then went to bed. Um, yeah. yeah. So that was uh, don't don't do that. That's that's my that's my best advice uh, to about bad experiences. What about you? Oh man. So I have a few. I have good and bad. I definitely. So I I don't play a, a lot of complicated complicated board games. I just kind of don't. It's not that I don't like them or that I don't want to at some point. Mostly my problem is uh, when I'm sort of socializing on the weekend, uh, my brain is not in that place where it, it would need to be. Like, <laughs> I, and like, I, let's, be, let's be clear. I don't think I'm stupid. I think I'm a reasonably bright person who can uh, take in a pretty large amount of information and act accordingly. I, I feel that there's a terrifying but coming from you. I, it's just... A lot of times I have had the experience of being at a nice board game event and a very nice person who's very excited uh, about the game we're about to play is talking about the rules. And I'm like, I'm into it. I'm into it. I'm into it. I'm into it. Oh, God, I lost it. Like that that happens to me a lot. I'm just just being honest here. I will just lose the thread within like five minutes. And it'll be one of those things where it's like, could I have like a slideshow? Could you could you give me like a deck? Like a slide deck and like, all right, okay, this makes sense. Can I make like a little chart or like a little graph or something? Like I need teaching aids to, to learn things. It's just a thing. Like I just need some teaching aids. Uh, and 
I think at most of most board game night events, most people there are are not uh, in my category. They do play a lot of games like this, and they do sort of absorb rule sets quickly and have some sort of background in that. And I'm just like, well, uh, I'm sh I sure do like playing those fun like role playing games where you just play a role and it's funny because it's basically just improv and with some you know <laughs> with writing things on paper and stuff. Uh, so I have felt like the, the, uh, the not as bright child, uh, in the room at many, at many a game board, uh, sorry, game board gaming event, uh, board gaming event rather. Uh, and, and that has sort of stained a lot of my experiences. I, I will say I have no. a, a rather funny story, which is once upon a time, I, uh, I went on a trip. Uh, actually, this was, believe it or not, this was the week Gamergate all happened. And we were in Lake Tahoe, myself and uh, my girlfriend and several friends. We had a beautiful cabin in the woods. And we had one of those experiences where every day was great because we went out to the beach and went outside and did nice things. And then at night, we would hear the next round of who was being attacked and what we would have to do about Wait, it. Wait, hold on. I, I just have to ask. Yeah. Because uh, you referred to this trip before. I yes. always thought it was like in reaction to Gamergate. Was it a no, pre-planned trip? No, it was a trip planned just trip. Up it as, was my oh, vacation. Fuck that. Fuck that. Yep, it was bad. Uh, <laughs> it was really bad. <laughs> I mean, at least you were with friends who were going through it too? Yeah. I don't know if that's better or worse, because on the one hand, it's inescapable, but like, also the isolation had to be one of the worst parts of this, right? Like, Yeah. It, it did help. It was nice to have support. Uh, that that yeah. was nice. It sure, it sure was. One of the nights during that trip, we uh, we brought the Lord, uh, not Lord, oh my god, sorry, uh, Game of Thrones board game. The uh, sort of... The big strategy game. Yes, the big strategy the big game. big map, yep. Uh, which I have actually played before and really enjoyed. I played like a full campaign of that once upon a time before the before the show even came out. It was it was a board game from I think the nineties, uh, and the people who had sort of gotten me into uh, Song of Ice and Fire, the the book series, uh, also had that board game. So I, I was a big fan of the books sort of before the show, et cetera, et cetera, and had played that game. So I actually knew this is actually a relatively rules intense game that I, I knew how to play. Well, we set up the board. We set everything up, we, we put everything out, we, we did all of that, and then we got so tired that we'd never played the game, and it just, the board just sat there with all its beautiful little miniatures and cards and all sorts of accoutrements just sitting on the dinner table for like two days, and we just, every time we looked at it, we were like, yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I, you know, that, it's a true story. It's a true story. So I have like anxiety over how dumb I seem when I am okay. not learning properly. All right. So yeah. Um, all right. Let's let, let me dig into this. Cause right. it's a one, real anxiety. I don't want yeah, to look no. stupid. Look, here's the thing. Yeah. I do not understand games. Okay. Um, which is bad because I host a, a show like three MA, uh, which is about like strategy games and in a lot of cases how games work. But what I mean more specifically is I am not going to understand how a game works until I've seen it in action, until I've like observed it in action a few times. There are a lot of people, and board games breed people like this, and they attract people like this, who can basically figure out how a game fits together from reading the rules. Mm. Um, I've got a friend, uh, David, who is really annoying to play games with because he's, he's, a, he's a game designer. He's very good at... like His job is to dissect game mechanics... 
and figure out how they fit together. And then because part of game design is anticipating like, you know, exploits and, and game balance issues, he also knows how to exploit um, mechanics. But the, the main thing is, I think he's frustrated sometimes playing with someone like me or, or other people because he reads the rules and he's basically got it. Like he's like, okay, I understand what's happening here. And I don't. And I think part of it is, it's sort of like engineers are good at reading blueprints, mm-hmm. right? Like they can, mm-hmm. they understand what they're looking at and like what all the symbols signify and how it's going to translate to like real world concepts. For me, I only really un- engage with the final product, how it works, you know, for the, the end user experience. And so I like, doesn't matter how slowly we go over the rules. Um, I need to see it in motion. I need to see a few turns go by. I need to, you know, play a few games before I've really figured it out. Um, and I think actually that's a lot of people. I think it's a lot of people who, I, who that play games. Certainly describes me as well. Absolutely. But a board game group can be a little bit like it can be a little intimidating because it feels like you're the person who doesn't get it, and everyone else understands the mechanics. And you just don't yet. And that feels like a personal failing. Um, now, the other thing is, uh, you know, what Davio would tell you, because uh, he's, he's told me this, uh, this exercise he used to do before. Um, when he taught game design, he would have people unbox a game but not look at the rules and try to come up with, like, a rule set for the components. That's cool. And his argument was that, like, the most successful games basically imply their mechanics and rules by their own design and that you know that's both the components you're using and the the artwork and and the um you know logos uh and and symbols that are on the board all of that adds up to like how you teach how the game teaches itself to you the most successful games you can actually kind of intuit a great deal uh, about the games and the rules just kind of help you how to they help you understand how to set it up and, and get the pieces moving. A lot of board games fail this test, though, and don't really have any sort of intuitive uh, instruction and leave people uh, a little more at sea. And I think that's that's the other thing is there's a lot of games that are going to make you feel dumb because they've never successfully been translated out of their designer's head, right? And... Other people can figure it out because, like, they're used to board game, like, conventions. Sure. You know, you play more of this, you'll, you'll understand how it fits together. But, yeah, no, board games, uh, there's so many of them that are just impenetrable uh, when you're sitting there trying to learn them. And it's so embarrassing and stressful yeah. when you're at a table like, four or five people and you're the person who every time play comes around you has to ask uh, to have a mechanic re-explained. Yeah. Yeah, it's real bad. And in a lot of those spaces, uh, I am just always like, it'll be common that I'm the only woman or one of very few women. And I'm always like, oh, God, just I can't I cannot be a good credit to my gender right now. And I I don't feel like being one and I don't want to be. And that like adds to it. And honestly, in a lot of these cases, that might not even be what's really going on. That might not be, you know, I might not be with a bunch of guys who are asshole sexist or anything like that's not what i'm implying it's more that just knowing that this situation is weighted that way or that i'm worried i could look bad in this situation makes it worse it makes me do worse and it's like 
God, man. Well, by this point, geek culture's already given you so many quiet tests, right? Like, you just instinctively are like, okay, well, how is it going to be read if I don't live up to this expectation? Exactly. Um, Yeah, it's frustrating. As for, like, good, like, teaching uh, experiences, uh, great ways to to learn a game, I'm curious if, like, anything uh, jumps out for you, like something that really did... Uh, sort of sort of saying as as you learned it yes and it's all on video and it was the uh is it dungeon world i think it's dungeon world uh segment of uh our 72 hour live stream uh when waypoint first began about a year ago we did a full uh rpg campaign and it was really really fun and the rules were very clear and clearly explained by adam coble who was our our dm for yeah. for the game uh, and it was really fun and funny, and it was it was really just all about actually just role playing and and just doing improv and basically you know there's there's sheets and there's numbers and there's things like that, but they all kind of make sense and they mapped on to something that made sense. Now, I I don't know if that was a terribly complicated rule set, uh, but it it all made sense, and I think having somebody who is just a good guide who who knows the game, he co-designed it, I think. Uh, knows the game well, knows what what sort of makes for a fun experience and wants you to have that fun experience, I think made all the difference in the world with that situation. Yeah. Um, I am I am stuck for like a truly great uh, learning experience. Uh, I'm really struggling. Like there's a few games that, um, you know, it hasn't been that hard to get into, but like, is that because the people I was playing with or, you know, I just, I, I don't know. Um, when it comes to tabletop games, I, I think that the best experiences I've had is when somebody, sort of like what you're describing, somebody was there who really understands the system and can unpack it for you and, you know, and translate it for you in a way that you're going to get uh, and will be really nice about it, right? Yeah. Uh, and so really like, I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is in this week of Rick and Morty Szechuan sauce, yeah. uh, it is a good time to consider like tabletop, uh, communities and audiences. Um, are your people, you know, are you successful? Like the, the best advocate games will have are the people who sort of adopt them and then share them with their friends. Uh, you know, the question is whether or not you're being a good ambassador for that game. Uh, or a bad one. Like rules can help a lot. Like good rule sets uh, are are utterly crucial. Um, and I've seen some really really impressive uh, rule sets that sort of break down uh, game actions really really beautifully. Um, oh uh, yeah, I, I guess an example I would have would be uh, Sakigahara, okay. which is a GMT uh, war game about the end of. I think we may have talked about this last year, but. It's about the final battles of um, of uh, the Sengoku period uh, that started the um, Tokugawa Shogunate, and it's it's kind of a complicated or intimidating looking game. But the rules are written in such a way that after setup, like you can always immediately find what you're looking for. Like it's just really well laid out. Like any question you have, you throw open the uh, rules, and almost certainly there's going to be a heading that like speaks directly to your question. Like everything has been anticipated, um, which is really, really good. Like a lot of roles are just written for a linear read through and then you sort of play it and you're supposed to internalize everything it tells you. What's cool about Sakigahara is that 
it was written almost like an instruction manual, you know, section 3.2, you know, section 4.5, but in a way that anticipated the needs you would encounter, the questions you would, you would encounter as you played. Uh, So that was a great game that did a a great job of teaching itself. Uh, But overall, uh, most important thing for me is like, who's, who's sharing this, right? Who is, who's the person unpacking it? Yes. Speaking of being game ambassadors. Oh, boy. Speaking of sharing one's passion without being a dick about it. (laughs) Devin from Cape Coral, Florida writes, Hey, all. I recently gave up on playing through 2017's Prey about halfway through. (sighs) And I think we're done here. So our (laughs) next email. Well. (laughs) Uh, about halfway through, which I understand is something of an Idle Weekend favorite. Specifically, I stopped a little bit after you reach a door, wherein you need to retrieve voice samples to make one which will open the door. Here are a few reasons I stopped playing. I was mostly enjoying the game when I reached the Arboretum, and the game's difficulty seemed to spike high. Dropping the difficulty down to easy did not help the situation. I'm getting one-shotted by lightning burst shots from phantoms, and those floating amorphous blob things left and right. Another thing... I'm just not feeling any of the story threads on display here. I feel like I don't know who any of the people who were aboard Talos 1 are yet, and I'm halfway through the game. When I found a terminal which played a song created by the crew aboard the ship, the moment was thwarted by the appearance of, like, five phantoms and those exploding human dudes. This is terrible. I'm, like, hearing these stories, and I'm like, oh, I know exactly who that is. That part was awesome. I know precisely what he's talking about. Yep. Let me explain to you why you're... Here's why you were wrong, and it was good, actually. (laughs) Uh, Anyway... Comparatively, I finished Tacoma in about four hours and felt like I knew the people aboard that ship from their personalities, struggles, fears, anxieties, relationships with each other, relationships with outside characters, etc. Praise level design isn't inspiring me, nor is the music, enemy design, combat, the space floating. I'm not finding it scarier tense anymore. The list goes on. I just feel hollow about the whole thing. I traded it in toward Dishonored, Death of the Outsider, eh, all right. which I'm really liking so far. I like Dishonored and love, to, and love Dishonored 2. Admittedly, it took me a bit, a bit to come around on Dishonored 1, but I still did, whereas I'm just feeling like Prey has become impenetrable. I heard you guys say Prey surpasses Dishonored 2, my current favorite immersive sim, which honestly completely perplexes me. So, what's Prey? Got that Dishonored don't. <laughs> what am I missing? How can I spec to better enjoy my experience? Be gentle, because I'm willing to go back to pray. I just need some guidance. Sorry this went long, and thanks for reading. Oh, Devin. Breaking my heart, Devin. This is, uh... So we just got an email from the Bizarro Universe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's... I First of all, Devin... It's also really okay if something doesn't click with you. This always, this is always the case for everything. Always, it's it's totally okay. You're not a broken human if if you don't like prey. If you don't like a game, it's okay. You know, if you don't like something, even if 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 you know people you think have good taste do like it, it's okay. I struggle with this myself, and I've talked about this many a time. Where I have felt like a broken like pile of human pieces who doesn't like fundamentally doesn't get something and i will like you know ram my head against the wall of trying to get it and, it, and it's like it's really okay it's really okay if you don't like it 
you know, clearly you like Dishonored, so you do have good taste, so it's okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm just making a joke there. It really is okay to yeah. not like something. Um, but it, it's tough, though, right? Like, I mean, come on, you, you like, you know, physician, constantly. heal thyself. Constantly. I have heard, like, you will apologize on the podcast for not being a uh, Destiny player. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it is Destiny's a divisive game. Yeah, it's just frustrating when a lot of people who you who you know are smart and have good taste and enjoy a lot of the things that you like are so into something and it it really looks like you know the game from that episode of Next Generation where it's just like a giant tuba and you're just putting a, a blood platelet like in the tuba like and they're just yeah. they're they're just like this is the best and you're just sitting there and you're like this it's a blood platelet in a tuba what's this Future games always look fucking. What am I? What am I? What am I missing here? What am I missing? It feels like that. It really feels like that all the time. And so I get it. I get it, Devin. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get you to do the thing that I <laughs> am pretty much incapable of doing, which is like admitting something just isn't for you. If you really, if you really do want, uh, if you want my uh, opinion on Prey's uh, shortcomings, I do. I suspect there were things that weren't ironed out before release i suspect that i do think there are some um difficulty spikes they weren't as bad for me because i spent so much time it was a genuine pleasure for me to explore every inch of that space station so i had a lot of neuromods and i was pretty well mm -hmm. specced and so like i was very powerful and there were points where i i hit kind of a pain point like i did die right outside of the arboretum like seven times my first try through there because i think that's the first telepath and it has like a healing bot and it, it goes berserk and it's really annoying um so yes there there are encounters in that game that i do think are frustrating and like no that's that's on the developers that's on them like that's not on you Devin, or anybody else um my advice like if you really want to to get it i would say push past that uh crew quarters is probably the coolest and best part of the whole game and actually it, the thing you're he yeah the thing you're explaining in in the, with the song that's in crew quarters and like if you're not gonna if you don't like the stories that you're getting in crew quarters that's the most story heavy and sort of personality heavy part of the game uh you pretty much can quit there uh yeah. in terms of story because that really is like the richest portion of the game for that Let's, you, maybe uh, you haven't pushed in further enough in because i know that room is really early on uh, well, it can be, but it wasn't for me. Like, okay, yeah. So the the thing the the thing I'll say is, prey is weird because it's uh your relationship with it. I think will be very tautological. Like, if you like prey, the more you will like prey. Yes. <laughs> like, I think if you like, for instance, the the thing about like I don't know who these people are. I don't really like understand like why I'm supposed to care about the story. And the reason I'm having trouble relating with that is because it clicked with me just enough at the start that I started really paying attention to all the names I was reading and like who these characters were. And I'm creating sort of the uh, dramatis personae in my head yes. as I'm playing it. But if I didn't buy in that much, as this game is telling me more about these characters and unfolding the story for me, it's going to be just gobbledygook for me. Like it's just going to be meaningless crap because I just won't, like, I won't have bought in. And so it'll just get more and more impenetrable. Uh, and then, like, it like it will it will be, um, it'll be an off-ramp instead of an on-ramp yes. uh, for me. The other thing is that, like, so the thing about the, uh, the Phantom showing up during the song sequence. Uh, 
What I remember was I was listening to a rad song, a bunch of phantoms showed up, and we brawled in the nightclub while a rad song played yeah. in the background, and I kicked their asses. Yes. But that was because, sort of like you, Danielle, I was like, I love Prey. I am going to strip mine this game for story nuggets and quests. And by the time I encountered that room, uh, which I'd actually, I even put crew quarters off for a while because I was like, no, I suspect that's going to be a rare treat. Yes. I don't want to. You're I don't right. want to spoil crew quarters yet. <laughs> so like, I avoided doing crew quarters and fucking flew around in the guts of the space station uh, for a guts. while, trying yes, to find some douchebag. Yes. Uh, but by the time I got to crew quarters, I was an unstoppable badass, and these adversaries weren't really obstacles to me. Uh, like, yeah, like the nightmare was a problem. Uh, the telepath uh, was a problem, but yeah. I also had a weapon that could like. Uh, basically two-shot the telepath and take out its control over humans. And so it's this weird thing of, like, pray. There's uh, Justin Caverne on Twitter made a great observation. He said that um, few games, few immersive sims uh, sabotage themselves the way Prey does. It's, like, designed to be sabotaged. Uh, in some ways. And I, he was speaking more narrowly about the mechanics, about like how you can basically break the game's difficulty curves and, uh, you know, destroy its different approaches because you're just like stealth stops being satisfying because you're just overpowered or it's too easy. Uh, thanks to some things you can unlock. Yeah. But I think it even extends to things about like pacing and story, right? Where, you know, you can, if you buy into Prey, Prey will keep giving you more and more and more. If you have trouble doing that, Prey starts leaving you behind faster and faster. And it's no longer talking to you. It's talking past you. And that can be enormously frustrating. Yeah. I, that completely tracks 100%. I, like, I've even had a hard time articulating precisely what it is about Prey that I liked so much. And I've... I've you know, I've written things about it, uh, and obviously I've done some video stuff about it, but it really absolutely is a game where you, if you're the type of player who wants to master an environment, like really master an environment, and know that you have 27 valid approaches through a level, and that you could conceivably do each one of them, even if you don't have to do each one of them, but you could, uh then you're going to love this game. But if you're not the kind of person who wants to absolutely master every inch or, or every system or every little nook and cranny, then it's probably going to be like, oh, fine, this is like a kind of janky immersive sim that I guess has some pretty stuff, but whatever. Like, I, I can see that. But for somebody like me, for me, the reason I play games is to be in environments. It's to be in weird places that don't exist. It's to completely... You know, sort of put myself in those environments and and do fun things in those environments. And so that game absolutely was perfect for me. It scratched that itch perfectly uh, for me. So that's why it was Game of the Year so far. I mean, Mario's not out yet, but we'll see. (laughs) One of my favorite things I've written this year was about my reaction to the end game of Prey, which which got a lot of criticism. But it was basically like uh, trying to speak to what you're what you were saying there, Danielle, of like. It's about, yeah, it's about, like, getting in command of a space and learning everything about it and mastering it. 
and toward the end of the game, Prey, I don't think, really wants it to be challenging anymore. Yeah. Uh, although you can... Uh, Brock Wilbur wrote an amazing piece uh, about uh, coming to grips with uh, his own mental health and bipolar disorder uh, via Prey, as a matter of fact. He wrote it mm. for Pace Magazine. Tremendous piece. Uh, and, and I highly, highly recommend it. But one of the other things that comes up in this piece is that uh, also the game like has a lot of achievements for like never taking a uh, a skill upgrade at all, uh, which like yeah. not even a human one, which I can't even imagine like playing that game can't even hack. Uh, without any yeah oh. like I I I don't <laughs> know how you do that I like like the mind uh, reels uh, considering it, but I think for most people. The end of prey is about feeling like you are in control uh, of the space, and you have uh, it has become your your ecosystem, um, and that's that's the joy of it. And it's it's definitely uh, not for everybody. But I, I think going back to our earlier conversation, Danielle, yeah, I have this horrible habit of thinking I'm not allowed to not like things that are good. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> I will beat my head against entire genres because I'm like, no people I respect are into this. I must see its merit. And once I see its merit, I can be at peace with it. Like I can accept that it's not for me, but I at least have to be literate in why it is good, why it succeeds uh, for people like, you know, who aren't like me. Um, and that leads me down a lot of shitty roads. Uh, I'll be <laughs> honest. Like I wish I could stop yep. doing that. Like it's made me watch a lot of movies. I didn't like it's made me play a lot of games. I don't like it's made me stick to books. I don't like, uh, but I have this like terrible, I don't know. It's like maybe it's like an intellectual inferiority complex where like if I don't at least get it, then I'm a philistine. Yes, yes, I have that it's so core to my being. I'm sure that's no secret to anybody who listens to this podcast. Probably knows I already have an intellectual inferiority complex. Like I have a I have a main text inferiority complex but it, my <laughs> subtext one is absolutely in this as well so completely completely it's it's fear of missing out and fear of like just being a simpleton not getting right. it what does it say about you that you don't like this wonderful great thing you know that's absolutely it so yeah Devin, Speaking of Devin it's okay and also if you're the type of player we we're describing you know you can give that a shot <laughs> Speaking of things that are only wonderful and great. Yes. Let's get to endorsements. Oh, yes. I, I think this is going to be one that we both have. I think this okay. might be a shared endorsement. I, th I think. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm just, I'm projecting now. See, I'm projecting into the future. I'm trying to, uh, to think of what you might say. But I, I just have this inkling that you're going to say what yours is. And, and I'm going to agree with it. And, and it's going to be both of ours. So, so go ahead, Rob. You, you go ahead. Right. I'll, I'll see if I'm wrong. I'll see if I'm wrong. So this weekend to wrap up uh, my, my my time out in the woods, uh, my partner and I woke up really early one morning and we watched uh, Blade Runner Final Cut. Uh, both of us for the first time. Like I had seen Blade Runner's director's cut uh, probably five or six times before this, but uh, I never actually watched the final cut version and my partner had never seen Blade Runner at all. Um, and so, yeah, I, uh, that's, that's what I did this weekend and I loved it. Yep. What about I, you? That's also mine. Uh, although I watched a different version this weekend. 
I actually, this was kind of funny. Um, you know, I had, I had planned to see 2049 with my, my mom and dad, which I did, actually. Uh, and we'll talk about that some other day. Uh, but in preparation for this, my sister and I and uh, my mother, until she went to sleep, she fell asleep, that happens. Uh, we watched Blade Runner as well. But the only thing we had in the house is a DVD of the director's cut, the 1991 version of the movie, basically. And uh, even though this DVD, the disc technically has the widescreen uh, version on it, whoever uh -oh. put it into uh, the DVD player uh, put it on the, the pan and scan full screen version oh my God. of the movie. So I watched the pan and scan version of Blade Runner, the director's cut, on you know an old SD TV. And, uh, oh my God. It was actually kind of amazing. As much as it was so claustrophobic and ridiculous, and that movie is a movie of beautiful, wondrous... I'm like having fits over here. Oh, yeah. I know. I know. Wondrous visual compositions. The pan and scan version is... It's so analog and claustrophobic that it sort of felt right. Even okay. though, you know, even though... Well, if you're watching it on an old CRT display, though, that yes. is going to be how it was meant to be seen. Like it, I was. Like, yeah. It's like people go back and they watch like SD video stuff now and they're like, how did we ever do that? And the answer is we didn't like the stuff displayed differently on a yeah. native uh, 320 resolution display uh, with CR like CRT display. Yes. Uh, it didn't look as bad as it looks on your OLED or whatever. Yes. That's correct. Uh, at the same time, <laughs> I can't like, I know. okay. So, I mean, Danielle, you know this about me. Um, I'm one of those assholes who like, wants to hi-fi everything and so which yes. is why i'm surrounded in my office by uh a home theater setup that gets a workout maybe once every other week <laughs> uh, it's why i've got a, a tv sort of hanging off the wall uh threatening to uh you know fall off and, and kill us all one day <laughs> um but yeah so we we watched uh this is the first time i've ever seen it on blu-ray Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So it's my first time seeing the final cut. Uh, this is the first time seeing it. Yeah, so before I'd only ever watched it, I think, on DVD uh, and, and on much older displays. So for me, this felt like seeing it for the first time. Um, in addition to the fact, like, I think the remaster actually changed the color balance of a lot of the movie, which, oh, totally. which uh, warmed it up a lot, which I think is, is really good. But yeah, so we just saw... Blade Runner. And I think director's cut, uh, it was the definitive version for like 20 years. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of people didn't see Final Cut until what, like five or six years ago? It, it, director's cut is what made that movie famous. Yes. Um, but here we go. I fucking loved it. Good. Okay. Okay. And so did my partner, uh, which I was worried about because it's one of those things that like, Blade Runner has been cribbed by everything. Uh, so a lot of stuff that was new and novel in that movie might seem like old and cliche. And I was worried about that. Uh, there's the entire like, how do you prepare someone to watch Blade Runner? Um, you know, it's like, what it, what are you getting into here? Because it, it can be a bit... If you think that movie is what it is at the start, which is a cyberpunk detective story... <laughs> You're going, th those expectations will lead you in the wrong direction and might like 
make it hard for you to enjoy it. It's why the theater cut even exists, right? Studio executives were like, what the hell ha- What the hell yeah. went wrong with what this cyberpunk this detective film? story? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so they forced like the, the legendary, like shitty uh, Harrison Ford VO uh, yeah. and try to make it like film noir with the future. And the happy ending. Don't forget the happy ending. Oh, fuck. I, I've never watched theater, uh, theatrical cut. Oh, really? Never seen it. That was all they had on VHS at my uh, local Blockbuster in uh, now, the year of our Lord 2002 oh when I was a senior in high school and like in the spring when I watched it for the first time. You deserve to die, Blockbuster. I, and I actually did not like the movie at all that first time that I saw it. I thought it was like, oh, okay. I hated it the first time I yeah, saw it. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was cut. like, this is supposed to be this classic you know, I, I had to watch it. I actually had to watch it for a high school assignment. Like, a, you know, it was like May 2002. I was five minutes away from graduating high school. And we had some bullshit assignment that I don't even remember at all. And this was part of that. It was for some acting class or something. And it was just like, yeah, Blade Runner and symbolism or whatever. You know, the, the kind of bullshit the high school teachers give you when they're they're done. They're fucking done. They, they've been done for months. And now they're really done. Uh <laughs> And yeah, that that was that was the only good old VHS that they had back then. So, VO happy ending and all. That's how I first saw Blade. Like Runner. they drive off into the sunset, correct? Basically, like literally, they. He yeah. says, uh, I think the line is, "We don't know how much time she has, but we're gonna make the most of it." It's it's some cheesy ass fucking. Uh, there's VO over it, and they're driving in a spinner, and they're in the woods. That sucks. They're in like beautiful greenery, like it's it's yeah. sunny out, and yeah. Um. So, what was interesting to me is, the cool thing about showing something uh, to someone for the first time is, like, you kind of get to see it for the first time yourself. Yeah. What was coolest for my partner, the entire, like, is Deckard a replicant, <laughs> like, discussion was kind of dead for her. Because for her, the, the final cut, at least, reads pretty unequivocally. Oh, yeah. He is a replicant. Like, that, like hands down, like, everything points to that. And so that changed her interpretation of a lot of scenes and gave her an interesting read on the movie that I think I'd missed uh, my first time through because I hadn't really like I didn't know what Deckard was and so I I took things more at face value and uh, it was interesting for her watching it and having sort of one of the central mysteries of the film not be a mystery at all and having a very like clear reading of, of what this movie is saying and, and where it's going uh, at all times, which was really interesting and unexpected. Yeah. I, uh, Patricia has yet to see either of the movies, uh, and she really wants to see the new one and has been asking me for a viewing of, uh, of Blade Runner, the, you know, whatever, whatever cut we can get our hands on. It'll probably yeah. be the final cut, I think, honestly. I don't um, think they sell, like, well, so the, the Blu-ray edition they sell these days, I think, has all three. Oh, that's kind of cool, actually. Yeah. Um, because it is a movie that is actually really fun uh, to go back and watch all the changes made in it. Like, it is actually a little bit uh, entertaining to do that if you, obviously, if you like the movie. Uh, well, I, it dispels this notion of like you, the immutable work, right? Yeah, it it, it is actually really interesting and fun, and and to uh, kind of go through and kind of comb through the details a little bit. You do your own little detective work, you know what I'm saying? A detective movie watcher. Yep, that sure is a thing. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm, I'm going to go that. through that with her uh, actually. So I guess I want to ask you. 
Uh, how did you prepare her for it? And uh, how, how did it go? I mean, it sounds like she really liked it, but, but what, was, what was your experience of experiencing it again with her? Yeah, uh, so what I basically said is like, you may hate this. <laughs> I yeah. was like, look, uh, let's get lowered expectations here. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's a movie that's been cribbed a lot of times. A lot of it probably isn't going to feel as fresh or original. Uh, some of it's become cliche because it's quoted so often. Um, it is ostensibly like, it was misinterpreted at the time as being sort of a detective story about hunting these killer robots, but like, uh, as later been interpreted, uh, and, and changed through edits as being more about like a meditation on what it is to be human and, uh, you know, what, what forms, uh, and meaning slavery takes, uh, in a modern society. And so that was the kind of, and, I, and the other thing I was like, look, and it's extremely slow paced. Like it's, yeah. Uh, not quite 2001 a Space Odyssey slow pace, but like <laughs> there's a lot of like slow lingering shots and a lot of stuff that's not explained. And she was uh, the reason we watched it early in the mornings because like the night we were going to watch it, she was like, I am not sharp enough to watch like an art house film or whatever. <laughs> uh, so we woke up at like six in the morning and uh, we woke up earlier than that because we keep ridiculous uh, early hours. Uh, but we started watching it at six in the morning. Um, and it was it was great. Um, wow. I think things that other things that are not ambiguous. Uh, the love scene yeah, between Deckard and Rachel. Um, not even a hesitation. Uh, like read completely as a rape scene. Oh, totally. Um, and I had forgotten how bad it was. Uh, I don't know if it's worse than the final cut. I do not remember it being this bad. Uh, but that's that could also be because I was, you know, when I read it, I was much more accepting of conventions of film like that. Sure. Because, uh, you know, basically Golden Age of Cinema all the way up until fairly recently, a popular stereotype was uh, the female Lee just needs to be grabbed and kissed. Uh, um, yeah. And that's, uh, you, you can uncritically accept that stuff. Uh, but watching it in the Final Cut version, uh, Sean Young is definitely playing it as, like, it's, it's a sexual assault. Like, yeah, she's fucking the, the, terrified. And the thing, like, my partner asked, I, I don't, I, like, I don't, like, she came up with a, with a good read on this. But, like, even she's not certain of it. Does the movie know that this is what Deckard has done? I don't think it does. Uh, at least, okay, so again, this is working from the director's cut, the 90s director's yeah. cut. Uh, and I, the last time I actually saw the final cut was when it was in theaters in 2007. So it's been 10 years since I saw that cut of the movie. So caveats, it, it may have actually been changed a tiny, tiny bit, but I don't think they made much of a difference in that particular scene. I feel like that scene did not change a ton. Correct me if I'm wrong, obviously, readers, but... Yeah, uh, God, I really don't think the movie knows that it's a bad thing. They play that sexy saxophone in the background and like, you know, later on in the movie, he kind of wakes her up in the apartment like, oh, my tender darling. Like, it's very, very like, oh, how romantic. I think the movie thinks that Deckard is, is just helping her to accept her humanity. Like, I think that's the read. 
that the movie thinks uh, is going on. That he's he's being forceful, but he's being forceful so that she knows she really is a real ass woman, and he really wants her. In the line before the whole assault, he she's playing piano and yeah. she's she's sort of like I I don't know if it's me or it's this you know fake memory girl that that is doing this, and he's just like you play beautifully, and like. That's kind of what starts it. It's like, oh, no, let me show you your real baby. Like, it's very, it is so fucked up. Um, I watched it with my mom and my sister. And my mom, who's, you know, a 66-year-old woman who who lived through the era of, of, you know, early Bond and thinking that Sean Connery, you know, being very forceful with women was the thing to do, you know, the thing, right? Like, normal, very normalized. And also, honestly, in the 80s, the action movie era, and... A lot of Harrison Ford movies kind of have yeah. touches of this. This is, I do think this is the most egregious, um, personally. Uh, but there's a whole lot of grabbing and kissing. In this scene, he he blocks her from leaving. Like this, he slams the, the door. door. The door throws was her into I, the other wall. Out of the room. Yeah, it, yeah, it's it is fucked up, dude. Like, I don't know. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like. Neither of us are, are are sure um if the movie is aware of this reading. Like obviously it's in Sean Young's performance, so to some extent, uh, you know, it that 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 in that meaning is there in the scene, it's there on film. Um Vangelis doesn't know it, his, his soundtrack <laughs> does not score the mood yeah. uh correctly. Uh but so what my girlfriend pointed out is that uh, there's a couple things. Uh, one is that Rachel does keep coming. Like prior to that moment, there's definitely like something between Deckard and Rachel. Yeah. Her interpretation. There, there's. Remember one of the things they say in the movie is that um, the replicants, as they develop their own emotional responses, uh, would sort of get out of control, and they tended to have uh, very um, not nuanced or emotionally shaded uh responses like the, in some yeah ways. they were, yeah, yeah they were they were volatile and that yeah. was was causing problems and giving them memories was sort of supposed to solve that um and which so where my partner was coming down with this is like what this is supposed to tell us about Deckard and doesn't forgive it but he is a violent killer robot who's been designed to have lower than usual empathy so he can function and do this job. And that scene is like, he sees what he wants, he is not getting it, and he responds violently with a sexual assault. Yeah. And it is in, it is in keeping with the fiction that the that has been laid out for us and what the movie has told us about like how these replicants behave. Um, which, but the thing is, is that justification or not? Like for, for the movie being aware or not, like it doesn't justify Deckard, but it, 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 it hints at the movie. The movie may be aware of this. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Um, it's a deeply uncomfortable scene. Um, and then the fact that, like, later she appears to... We, well, we only see her for a brief moment uh, later in the film. But, um, yeah, her passivity, uh, willingness to remain with him. Is she basically being held hostage by this crazed replicant? We don't know. 
yeah. but it's it, it makes a lot of that film tougher and more complicated. Yeah. It, it's really hard. Um, it's really hard in a lot of ways because uh, just speaking, you know, I, I uh, definitely have had a soft spot for Harrison Ford, especially, you know, young hottie Harrison Ford. Yeah. For sure. He is absolutely like an object of desire in this movie for, for people who like men, right? It's, yeah. He's hot. He's attractive. He, he's doing his Harrison Ford rogue thing. Um, and and like watching a love scene where somebody who is, you know, attractive and you cannot separate. I don't know if you can completely separate, you know, the the Harrison Fordness of his of his superstar yeah. from Deckard, the, you know, asshole killer. Uh, like it's hard to do that. Right. Because he he plays such a type in so many movies, especially yep. at the time in the 80s. He, he was he was Han Solo. He was like yeah. the blueprint for hot, hot rogue Recast guys. Recast that scene with J.T. Walsh, and it's just a waking night. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you know, like it's it's a little hard to like to watch this and be like, oh, this is him at his prime. He was so attractive. He was so good looking. He was so, you know, roguish guy kind of thing. Uh, and like you watch this, and it's like this is terrifying and icky and disgusting. And it's really like, am I supposed to find this? really enticing and like it doesn't mean you're a bad person of course people have all kinds of fantasies i'm I'm not trying to yuck anybody's yum to use uh, that phrase but like it is such a skin crawling kind of moment to to see this you know and 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 i i just don't know if it's if it's fully uh you know intentional (laughs) I, i i think the read i always kind of went with was very very straight that he he was kind of this is him imposing his his sort of manly will on Tyrell in a lot of ways that, you know, not only was he, he seeing her as like his instead of Tyrell's, like in a lot of ways, kind of doing the, the fucked up, you know, uh, it's not Oedipal by any means, but, but that sort of like weird family yeah. dynamic kind of, kind of was playing into it. Like now she's mine and she needs to know she's real. And she's not just a weird daughter. Now she's a, she's a, whatever other type of figure. Like I I saw it as almost like this weird biblical kind of read to it, uh, which, you know, uh, elements of both claiming and also like demonstrating humanity. Yeah. Demonstrating by a force. (laughs) Exactly. Like very forcefully demonstrating this. Uh, It's pretty, it's pretty bad. And, and like, I I always am very interested when I watch these things with my mom, uh, who is very much a product of, you know, her times. Yeah. Uh, but is a uh, very intelligent and well-read and open-minded person, uh, you know, who just happened to live through some pretty fucked up times and a lot of changes in the world. And, you know, she's very much of the, oh, no, oh, my God. You know, we were watching it and she didn't, she clearly didn't remember the scene being this rapey. And, like, we're watching it. And, and when the door slams, she's she goes, oh, you know, she had, like, a yep. visceral reaction. She actually yep. sort of jumped a little. I was like, oh, you know, oh, no, that's not right. Um, and it was it was interesting for sure, because I remember saying right before it, I was like, well, here comes the rapey scene. Like, I, you know, not not yep. trying to make light of it by any means, but like, oh, this is this is coming up, you know, kind of almost like a warning. Uh, and yeah. God, was, and then he demands that she ask him to do it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and like, for me, it was the door. Because uh, yeah. I remembered a lot about the scene. What I had forgotten is that, like, I think what I've been able to do was write that entire scene off as, like, the shitty conventions of movies back then. Yeah. The door is beyond the pale. 
Yeah. The door, even by those standards, the door is a fucked up touch. And then Sean Young's performance is uh, really effective uh, and relatable and and upsetting uh, at that moment. And so, yeah, it reads, it comes across badly. Um, yeah. And yeah, <laughs> so I, I do think the, like, I, I'm increasingly, like, with Final Cut, I think the movie uh, does tend to be aware of that. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know what I was going to say. Um when it comes to like, yeah, having difficulty separating the Harrison Fordness of that, uh, my dad once pointed out that like Philadelphia Story mm-hmm. uh, opens with a pretty brutal act of physical violence from Cary Grant uh, against Catherine Hepburn, God, and you're people right. fucking love this movie. It's a really popular movie to this day. Like it's considered one of the great romantic comedies uh, of its era, um, and a big part of that is because all the shitty behavior we witnessed in that movie, and it is, like my, like my dad did a close read of it with me once, um, it is enormously shitty. Uh, like, liter- there's, there's hardly a scene in that movie that is not, like, just laden with classist and sexist bullshit. It's a terrible movie. Also insanely popular in its time, uh, incredibly popular to this day. And my dad's like, his argument is basically, people didn't see it this way, because Cary Grant can't be the bad guy. Yeah. Um, Hitchcock managed to make him the bad guy, uh, at least, like you know, one, in some ways, uh, make him the bad guy more sinister uh, once or twice. But it's unequivocal in the in the Philadelphia story. He grabs Catherine Hepburn and throws her to the ground. Yeah. Uh, violently by her head, and if you saw somebody do that, you would call the police. Yeah. And in that movie. The movie kind of wants you to read it as like, ah, it's just a fiery relationship. She's like, oh, what a tempestuous pair. Uh, and it's like, no, she snapped a golf club in half and he threw it to the ground. And it's just because we look at these two beautiful people, both, you know, rolled 20 on charisma. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we think, well, those two, now those two must kiss. You know what I mean? They, they must get together because that's, that's what the expectation movies have set for us. And I think it's tough to escape that with, uh, with Blade Runner. Yeah, it absolutely is. The other question. Yeah. Does the movie know it's racist? Oh, um, God. Oh, God. Because what my partner pointed out... And it does seem more noticeable in the Blu-ray version because you can see the the scenes better. Like you can literally like you you, you sort of get and understand what that world looks like. Uh, the movie is full of Asian and Middle Eastern people, predominantly Asian. Yes. There's really only I'm not even I think Tyrell uh, reads to me as a Western educated Asian man, to be honest. Uh, but it's like his, his ethnicity is ambiguous. Yeah. Uh, but the only white human characters who we can like absolutely swear are human are J.S. Sebastian and Captain Bryant. Yep. Everyone else's status, I think is kind of, uh, you know, up for grabs whether they're a replicant or whether they're, uh, sort of, sort of a white American, but the rest of the people in this world, uh, especially the working class people are, Asian, uh, South Asian, East Asian, uh, but the question is, or Edward James almost, right? Who is, is he in white face? What or, the no, sorry, fuck yellow is face it? or yeah. not? That is also a, an aspect of this, but yes, yeah, sorry, go on. No, like 
it's effective though because like Edward James almost is the most ambiguous. Like, what the fuck is he in this movie? Right. Uh, but <laughs> um, so the question is: Is the movie using all these uh, people of color in these scenes? Is their presence meant to depict that this is a fallen society? Or is it meant to show that this is an exploitative society? That uh, this teeming underclass is all people of color. They're all immigrants. uh, And they're all being made to work skilled positions for low wages. uh, And the ruling class is sort of off camera somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's that's a major, major, major issue, and it's sort of it's it's another aspect that like like with the the rapey scene like feels a whole lot like this is uh, an aspect of this movie that is aged very poorly. Uh, that oh yes, you, you could you could get away with a lot of Orientalism in the early eighties in Hollywood that maybe doesn't uh, play as well today. You know, um, maybe causes some more. Uh, raised eyebrows today. But yeah, it, it is really kind of shocking how many characters uh, of color are just sort of, yes, this guy who works on the eyes. Yes, this, this is the geneticist woman who knows what the snake is. Yes, this and that. You know, it's very like, yeah, these people are very smart and uh, skilled and and probably very interesting people, but they're just there to service Deckard in some way. Well, yeah, but this is, but I just don't know. But the readings there in the film, right? They're all portrayed to be competent, smart. Like, they're all the skilled laborers, the people who clearly are actually, like, making the society run. And they don't count in this world. But is the movie, but is, like, what I can't figure out, is, is the movie saying they shouldn't count and it's a sign of how fucked up things are that there's all these Asian people running around? Or... Is it a sign that this is an unequal and exploitative society? Because all these smart and talented people are basically being kept uh, doing shit jobs in the slums. Yeah. I don't like... Yeah, I think it's ambiguous. <laughs> I agree. Um, it, it's It's got to be telling in some way how much they use just Asian iconography as well. Uh, just to like dress the world in a lot of ways. Yeah. And the, the woman, the the geisha woman who is in everybody, you know, everybody's favorite uh, beautiful scene at the beginning where we're just sort of first being introduced to what LA looks like. And, and she's, you know, on the side of the building mm-hmm. being so very classy. And, and you know, it's just, you, I, I just feel like the, the movie really just kind of uses a lot of that as window dressing. And I don't, I don't know that there was much of a purpose beyond that. And and that in itself is very telling. I I suppose this is a, this is going to be a hard turn, but I suppose it uh-huh. is worth talking about things that work in the movie <laughs> as well. Uh, if this is our, I guess if this is our endorsement. Uh, well, I'm not sure that this stuff doesn't. That's the thing. Is like I'm still like oh, this stuff might work. Like I don't know. Like including the right. assault. Like right. the assault may actually like read. Because it's like, indicting it Deckard with, as a piece of shit <laughs> in a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah, or, or yeah, like he can't, you can't do this job and be a good person. Like he wants to, you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. he wants to think that like he's not entirely defined by the fact that he's basically an assassin. But like as we see, like violence literally poisons everything he touches. 
uh, he can't like he resorts to brutal violence uh, at the drop of a dime. I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah. Things that work, though. Things that unequivocally we love. Roy Batty, I think, is us. His, uh, sorry, Roy, it's Rutger Hauer, and his yeah. performance as Roy Batty is, it's something I enjoy more every time I watch the movie, I feel like. It, it is, it is not necessarily a, a very subtle performance in a lot of ways. It is, a, he's playing a ridiculously over-the-top character. Uh, you know, he, he's basically the Terminator if the Terminator decided to have feelings <laughs> in a lot of ways. Like, that's kind of the character. Uh, but he just, the way he moves, the way he emotes, the way he comes across the world, it is it is really something. Uh, and I sort of love it more every time. They all, look, the, I don't think it, it really clicked for me until I watched this movie, that, like, Rutger Hauer is unequivocally the hero of this movie. Oh, for uh, sure. In a lot of ways. Yeah. The people who get killed on his watch generally had it coming. Uh, I don't, the only, like... Yeah, there's, there is one exception, but it's... Yeah. JS? I, yeah, JF. I mean... Uh, I don't know, man. He only helped him out, you know? Yeah, he but He was also, also not a threat by any means. Yeah, but also he's like one of the designers. Like you're basically like yeah. he like he's the assistant to Dr. Mengele. Like That's he might true. be naive and dumb, but like look at the first thing he does when they were he figures out their Nexus 6 and then immediately asks them to do a trick. Do something cool. Yeah. Yeah. True. No, he's true. he's an irresponsible man-child. Like you can have sympathy for him, but at the same time I'm not sure like yeah, I'm like I have generally in the past felt bad for him. This time, like reading the movie as just more like I am just basically like on team Nexus Six. Yeah, totally. Uh, I'm watching this and I'm like, you know what? Fuck this guy. Like yeah. he's maybe harmless, but he's definitely like part of these systems of oppression, right? He's responsible for a lot of this evil. Um Yeah, that's fair. I I It feels very horror movie-ish the way it's kind of framed when, when JF is just kind of also in the room and he's just sort of trying to run away. And I can't not have sympathy for that, uh, you know, just in terms of he, he's like just a weaker person. He's just the he, there's no there's no threat he could ever pose in any world to to, you know, the the power and awe and the mightiness of, of Roy Batty. Uh, but you're not wrong. He sure he sure was a big part <laughs> of Tyrell's uh, crappiness. So yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, like I yeah, this was the first time of like yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll leave it there. But Roy Batty, I think yes, that performance is so good. Um, his line readings are fantastic, but oh, he just he. It is over the top, but he does it, it works because like his character has had four years, right? To like absorb everything. And so everything's like super heightened and he's in the last days of his life. And it's this like, you know, crank to eleven, go to Damarung performance, uh, that is just tremendous from beginning to end. And I, I love so much that moment when he's having his final fight with Deckard, or his pursuit of Deckard. He never actually fights him really. Um, yeah, that's true. He yeah. just, yeah, he just pursues him. But there's that moment on the rooftop. He's got moments of life left. And the last thing he chooses to do is an act of mercy, right? 
and probably an act of mercy to a fellow slave. You know, probably he is sparing someone who, yes, is a monster, who's been made to do a monstrous job and has been transformed into a monster by his masters. But the last thing he's going to do is try to pass on this awareness. And I, it just it's so good that there's that moment where he turns away from the rooftop and the camera just like, you know, you get a glimpse of his face as he considers, like, what's the next move here? And then he goes and rescues him and he delivers that great line, right? The, uh, you know, you know, this is like, that's what it is to be a slave. Yes. Yeah. About, yeah, about, about terror, about the constant fear. Um, yeah. And Daryl Hannah uh, as well. Like She's wonderful her, in this movie. The way she manipulates and relates to um, Sebastian and he, there's a point where he turns his back and immediately all the affect like drains like just, yep. like she like she has no feelings toward him whatsoever like it's all an illusion it's such a great moment that her job has been like she has learned how to like relate and please human masters yep. that's what she does does not mean that any of it's real and there's uh, like it doesn't make her bad or deceptive she's a slave trying to survive uh and i think that comes across so well with her performance uh the same goes for oh god i can't leon well leon absolutely but i was thinking of the other woman character who you know we see her as like a porn performer basically or, or some some oh, something yeah, zora. Along those lines. zora yes 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 same goes for zora and her just sort of, I don't know, her like just blue collar, no bullshit attitude in her one speaking scene. I mean, that's the thing. She doesn't have much to work with by any means. But, she, but, but it's memorable though, right? Oh, like absolutely. Her bemusement at this odd little man who's come to visit her. And you'd be surprised what men would do to get a glimpse of a beautiful body. And yeah. her just. She's like, I wouldn't. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's. God, that really, scene is so good. Really good. Uh, shout out to Leon here, by the way, Brian oh, yes. James. Yeah. Uh, so, thing, great thing about seeing on a large TV with a Blu-ray. Um, so, there's things like one, like all the replicants are smart, but like it's easy for people to think that like Leon is dumb because of the way he looks and talks, and he plays to that. Uh, but one of the things I really love, one of the touches, all the replicants are obsessed with photos uh, in this movie, but Leon takes his phone, his own photos. And there's obviously the scene where replicant, where where replicant, where Deckard yeah. uses the Esper or device repli- to look at these Replicard. Replicard. Yeah. Tell them that. yeah. <laughs> but what I hadn't realized until I watched it this last time, Leon is a beautiful photographer. Yeah. The photos he leaves behind of the group hiding out in the Yukon Hotel are gorgeous. Yes. And I don't know. I just love this detail of like. You know, the way my partner put it, he was designed to be, uh, you know, a fish and fuel loader aboard a warship. Yeah. Uh, and he's he's the artist uh, of the bunch that like that what he would actually prefer to be doing is just like taking photos or maybe painting pictures. But like he has this he has this eye and it's there in the film, but it's easy to miss. Um, yeah, it's it's great. It's really that's a really wonderful observation. It's not one that I've made before about Leon. 
Well, you're not going to see it on the CRT. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, absolutely true. Yeah. Like, literally, this is like, oh, I've never seen this on a big screen uh, in high def before. And, like, now I can see what those photos are. And they're yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, that um, makes a lot of sense. Exactly. God. And and Sean Young um, is God. It's really... It's really hard to articulate why and how she's so good in this movie she she just she has so many sort of characters within her as she kind of goes through her arc when she's just provoking him when they first meet is beautiful and it was always sort of the part of Blade Runner I liked the most is is her Voight test and how she's just like whatever asshole just absolutely taking no shit she has no interest in, in this like scruffy asshole who comes in and testing her and getting the hair and the outfit and her, her mannerisms and God, the costuming. So, Oh good. my God, it's incredible. I just, I love her in this movie. Um, okay. So having watched it this time and my partner's observations in my ear, I think I finally settled and it's probably gonna be blown away by uh, Blade Runner 2049. My assumptions are going to be blown apart and whatever, but I think I finally settled on like what I think is actually happening in this movie. Okay, please, please go on. Okay. My partner pointed out that at no point is Deckard unsupervised. There's moments where he appears to be alone, where he appears to be unsupervised, but that proves to be an illusion. At the very end, uh, Edward James Olmos, uh, Gaff, shows yeah. up out of nowhere. And it's easy to think, because a lot of things happen in that movie that are kind of, uh, you know, metaphorical. It's easy to think, okay, well, that's just the way the movie's constructed. But what's actually happening is he was there the entire time. Like, he sees the end of this fight. And throws Deckard his gun and says, you've done a man's work, sir. Uh, and then lets him go uh, with, uh, you know, the the replicant uh, that he's been sort of gifted or taken by force or whatever. But, like, the implication is maybe we're letting you go. Or maybe we'll hunt you. Uh, but at no point is Deckard unsupervised. He yeah. is... And my thinking is that, like, remember when we find him... He's just sitting in front of, like, I think an electronic shop in the yep. rain. Yeah. And we don't know, like, we, we think he has antecedents in this, like, that there's a past for this character. But we don't know that. Like, for all we know, he basically came online minutes before <laughs> because, holy shit, there's a bunch of Nexus 6 replicants running loose on Earth. <laughs> and we need to deal with this. Here's the other thing. That scene you were just talking about, the Voight Comp test at the Tyrell Corporation. There's no reason for that scene to exist. Oh, Tyrell wants you to take a look at a Voight co- at a replicant over there. Why? This is a replicant that can't that could like the replicants the Decker is hunting can't pass the Voight camp the comp test. Like right. they they do have these these empathy issues where they they have intense emotional reaction. That scene is for Tyrell. Tyrell wants to see his his replicant. <laughs> yeah interrogating his, his other replicant. replicant. Yeah. He wants to see how they interact. The entire thing is a fucked up experiment. The other thing is when Bryant is showing him the video of Leon's interrogation, which by the way is why Decker comes into the story because the human blade runner couldn't get the job done and got murdered because he wasn't fast enough. He wasn't sharp enough. He didn't realize how much danger he was in. A replicant wouldn't have made those mistakes. So they bring out a replicant when he's watching the footage of Leon's, um, interrogation. Captain Bryant is not watching the footage. He's watching Deckard. 
And the expression on his face isn't exactly like trusting or easy. He's a man who feels weird about being in this room. Yeah. Because he knows that this is a replicant and it's it's spooking him a little bit. And he plays the part, but like he's not this is not just a like collegial like bringing somebody up to speed. Right. It is this is all part of an ongoing experiment. And it goes horribly fucking wrong. It goes <laughs> wrong for Tyrell. Yeah. Um but I don't even know if he's pulling the strings. Gaff is the one who's doing the closest uh, observation of this entire thing. Gaff is the one who appears to know everything. Uh, he's the one who's leaving those little, you know, those little clues around as to like we know exactly what is in your head. Um, but yeah, so like by the end, my interpretation at least is that a lot of this is being done for the benefit of Tyrell. It is, it is for the benefit of their human masters, this entire hunt. Uh, the hunt might be real or not, but certainly like things like Deckard and Rachel's interaction, these are not things that just happen over the course of the plot. They're not things that have to happen unless you accept that like there's something else at work. And that's yeah. kind of where I've come out, come out with this movie. Yeah. I think that's a really good read. And I, I need to crystallize a few things uh, that I think about this movie, uh, certainly. But I, the longer time has passed, the more times I've seen it, the more I, I am geared towards that direction as well. That there is, there's a whole lot of subterfuge kind of going on here, uh, even beyond kind of what I originally thought was going on. So, yeah, I, God, this is a movie I can watch every day, probably, yeah. uh, even just for the visual sort of splendor of it. And even when it's incredibly ugly, it's just one of the most beautiful movies ever made. Some of the most beautiful cinematography. And I, without even, you know, tipping off anything or spoiling anything, I can say safely that does extend uh, to 2049. So it's, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's something I could watch every day in my life. <laughs> I'm still probably pick out a new detail, even if I'm watching the pan and scan version, uh, yeah. which, which honestly feels like you're watching the movie, but it's crowded up to your face almost like you're, you're sort of God, you're can't. watching the movie in a plane like that's it. That's the feeling of it. Like it, it's really weird and really claustrophobic. Uh, <laughs> pan and scan sure is a thing, uh, man. Uh, <laughs> crimes against Blade Runner, but also. God, just because interesting it way is, to experience it. Just because yeah. it is fuzzy and it is on a CRT, it is almost a little bit like, oh, this is the most analog way of watching this movie. Like, uh, okay, all right, all right, that makes a certain kind of sense. Um, last thing I'll say, uh, just in terms of uh, appreciating the movie, is the production design is it's still almost impossible. Uh, I, I think maybe I prefer Alien, uh, just in terms of a pure detail and pure. Uh, just just amount of visual flair and the amount of storytelling detail that kind of goes into every tiny element, uh, but not by much, uh, because I still think Blade Runner is is among the very best uh, production designed movies, I guess, just whatever, uh, has among the best production design in any movie ever made. It's just incredibly, incredibly beautiful. The models, the sets, uh, the matte paintings, just, oh my God, they just create this world that you can sink into. Even, even if it's a very depressing and sad and grimy world, it is, it is really delicious to look at. 
God, the Bradbury, just that, like the, oh, the rain pouring yes. into that courtyard. And yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, the, uh, which is a more tactile evocation of the future. Uh, the Blade Runner alien deathmatch would be pretty tremendous. Yeah. Uh, like, cause I could make a case for either. Yep. <laughs> uh, I think alien probably is more convincing just cause it's more intimate space. Like you see where the crew eats and sleeps and shits and all that. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, Blade Runner, you don't, you aren't confined, uh, in that sense, but there are so many moments of, of just rich texture, uh, and, and, you know, and, and how this world is built and feels, um, yeah, I I love it, and I feel like this time I finally came to you know with seeing it you know with fresh eyes and different different looks at it. I, I came to a reading that I think for me at least, like whether the movie fully intends it or not, helps me make sense of a coherent story here. Yeah, um, like that there aren't just a ton of dangling threads, but in fact, like there's a lot of implied things about the degree to which this is all artificial. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really looking forward to watching it with Patricia and seeing what she thinks. Uh, that's going to be a treat for me, as well as seeing uh, 2049 again, of course. And again, I'm yeah. sure we'll talk about that some other day. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Double endorsement for Blade Runner's final cut right there. I think that's, that's a very good place uh, for us to think about heading out and enjoying our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And we really do appreciate you spending some time with us. And we would also appreciate it if you would tell some friends, tell some, uh, you know, buddy replicants, uh, you know, tell, tell everybody, anybody that you think might enjoy the show. Uh, word of mouth is how we kind of get around. And also, if you could take a moment to review us on iTunes, that would also help us out so, so much. We really do appreciate it. And we thank you for your time. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends. <laughs>